Our scripture reading is James 4, 13 through 5, 6. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time, then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is the word of the Lord. Just a nice light word. <laughs> well, good morning. morning. And welcome to Aliso Creek Church. It is so good to get to be with you all this morning and to get to look at a good, uh, though challenging word from God. I'm going to open to that word now. There we are. But let's, uh, let's start by asking for his help in understanding and approaching this text. Let's pray together. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the truths therein. We thank you for... God, we thank you for speaking to us. Um, Lord, we pray that we wouldn't take that for granted ever, but especially right now, Lord. Um, so we ask that by your Spirit you would, you would move in our hearts, you would, that you would open us up to receiving uh, wisdom from you. Lord, may we, may we approach your text this morning uh, with a submissiveness, with a desire to surrender our plans, to surrender our wills, to surrender our lives to you, knowing, God, that you are, you are good, uh, that you're trustworthy. So God, help us to have faith. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, over the, the last few years, I have had countless conversations with people who have had major life events canceled or postponed or greatly altered because of the pandemic. Weddings, honeymoons, graduation ceremonies, long-anticipated trips— Events that had been planned and paid for with, at the time, a good degree of certainty that they would come to fruition. And then COVID happened. And so instead of just a regular wedding, there were COVID weddings. Instead of regular graduation ceremonies, there were COVID graduation ceremonies. Instead of regular babies, there were COVID babies. Um, I, I have one of those. Now, I don't know about you, but I was not a fan of the global pandemic. I think in general, those are kind of a bummer. But 
I think there's some valuable lessons to be learned from them. And one of the primary ones that I think we all had to learn in, in these past few years was the fact that we are not in control. Right? Despite our plans, despite our intentions, despite our wisdom, despite good, noble efforts to make things happen, there are circumstances that are beyond our control. We are limited and finite creatures. Every plan that we make is subject to a whole host of factors, the ultimate factor being our sovereign God. And that reality is addressed powerfully in this text. In these verses, James looks at the human tendency to make plans with confidence and reminds us, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. And this is a truth that we need to be continually reminded of. Our lives and works, we're told here, are but a mist. And so we need to learn to prioritize that which is eternal. So this morning, we're, we're really going to focus on James 4, uh, James 4, verses 13 through 17, though we will, we will look a bit at uh, James's words at the beginning of chapter 5 as well. But we're going to look at, at three primary things. Uh, the reality of our plans, the problem with our plans, and approaching our plans in God's world. All right, so let's begin now by looking at the reality of our plans. Right, James addresses this in the first verse of this passage, writing, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Now, in this verse, James is addressing traveling merchants. Uh, the specific travels were often by sea, and, and merchants in James's day would have gone out to spend time in new places, establishing contacts and trading before moving on to a different location. And the movements of these merchants, they wouldn't be random. They wouldn't be based on a whim. No, they would be planned. What we observe in verse 13 is the language of everyday planning. Right? This should be very familiar to us. Plans like these are just a part of life. Right? We could just as easily substitute plans to go and buy and sell goods with plans to go to a particular school, plans to go to work, plans to go on a vacation, plans to send your kid to preschool. Right? This is just the stuff of everyday life, and there's nothing inherently wrong with planning. There's nothing wrong, too, with an entrepreneurial spirit like we see uh, mentioned here in this text. The Bible commends hard work, and hard work often requires planning. So what is the problem? Well, let's take a look at that now. The issue, I think, is, is twofold, and we can see it, see it in these verses. The issue is our motivation when making plans, as well as the attitude with which we make plans. I'm going to put verse 13 back up on the screen. Now, looking at verse 13, right, there's a motivation to these plans. There's something listed here, and that is to make a profit. Now, is making a profit wrong? No, absolutely not. Right? There would be, no, be no point in, in doing business if you were not going to make a profit. And I think the same question could be asked about ambition, right? Here we've got 
merchants making plans and hoping that things will happen, probably hoping to progress and, and have bigger and better, uh, bigger and better opportunities, bigger and better, uh, uh, bigger and better profits. Now again, is, is that in and of itself wrong? No, it's not. But ambition by itself, ambition by itself is not a bad thing, but it can quickly turn into selfish ambition, which is what we talked about a few weeks ago. And money by itself is not a bad thing, but it can quickly morph into the love of money, which is a, a very bad thing, as Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And Jesus himself warns, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And this is why James has such strong words for the rich in chapter 5, saying, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. I mean, don't you wish that James would just tell it how he sees it, you know? Like, just, just, just tell us what you think, James. Um, my goodness. Now, is this verse referring to everyone who could be considered rich or, or wealthy? Right? Is every wealthy person to weep and howl according to the Bible? No, I don't think so. For one thing, if you look on a global scale, probably every person in this room is wealthy. The average household income worldwide is $9,733 per year. And currently, there are over 1 billion people around the world who live on less than a dollar a day. I don't know many of us who would call themselves rich, but if we look at things from that perspective, we absolutely are. And something we should remind ourselves of in Orange County, um, especially in, in South Orange County, right? we, we tend to not think of ourselves as well off. And sure, I live in a gated community, but the, the houses in that gated community over there are way bigger, right? This, this word is, is to every single one of us. By, by global standards, we are all wealthy. But another thing we need to take into account is that wealth isn't talked about in a one-dimensional way throughout Scripture. We need to be wary of it, especially the love of money. But there are places where the Bible talks about wealth as a blessing from God. So, for example, in Proverbs 10.22, we read, The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. And there are several stories throughout Scripture about God blessing people with material abundance. You can think of stories uh, like Abraham or, or Job. You know, Job, who was wealthy, lost everything, saw that all he really needed was God. And what did God do? Say, okay, good, continue to live in poverty so that you can live out this lesson that you just learned. No, God doubled everything that Job had. So money by itself, again, it's not necessarily evil. The Bible talks about it in a multifaceted way. Jesus' ministry even was supported by wealthy women. Uh, Luke mentions this in, in, uh, in chapter 8, and you can see in verse 3 that these women who were impacted by Jesus' ministry then provided for Jesus and his disciples out of their means. Again, so the issue isn't wealth in and of itself. The issue is a love of wealth that pushes out other things. The people that James is addressing are, as you can see in verses uh, 4 through 6, they're defrauding people that work for them. 
They're perpetrating injustices while greedily lusting after more and more gain. A love of money has blinded their hearts, causing them to do evil. So I think a question worth asking is how do you know if you are there? Well, you can ask yourself, do you find yourself justifying things that you know are wrong in order to save or earn more money? Are you tight-fisted with your money, ignoring the needs of, of people in your community? Do you pray that God would show you how to use the resources that He has given you? I think for a lot of people, the answer is, is no. It's, it's hard for us to, to, to pray those types of prayers and to pray them specifically, not just in general, God, you've, you've given me this blessing, but I have this big purchase coming up. What do you think of that? Uh, there's, a, uh, there's a book called A Praying Life that our staff is actually currently working through. The author there, Paul Miller, made a fantastic point. He said this, he says, we don't mind acting selfishly, but talking selfishly is embarrassing. And I think this is particularly the case when it comes to the way that we think about and use our money. We, we, we pray about all sorts of things. We are comfortable praying about ailments. We pray for our kids. We pray about world events. But we often neglect to pray about the things that we should buy. Because oftentimes we, we plan to do what we want to do. And talking about what we want to do, it, or asking God for something that we want, it feels awkward, it feels selfish. But the truth is, God wants to be involved in every decision that we make. So this word from James is a word for us. All right, so the pursuit of profit as an end in itself is problematic, to say the least. But looking back at verse 13, there's another problem. And that is the bold assertion that things are going to happen according to our plans, according to our timetable and expectations. And why is this problematic? Well, James lists it out quite clearly in verse 14. He says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. See, James tells us that we shouldn't boldly assert our plans for the future because we don't know what the future holds. And I've been thinking about this point all week in times where it has, made, it has been made very clear in my own life that I don't know what the future holds. Right? We all have circumstances where we have had a plan and then it just all goes away. And the, the thing that kept coming to, to my mind uh, this week is, is a more dramatic uh, example of that. Um, it happened when I was uh, starting to date Katie. Um, I met Katie when I was in middle school. Katie's my wife. I, so I met Katie when I was in middle school, um, and we started dating in high school. Uh, I was a senior. She was a junior. And up to that point, uh, I had never had a girlfriend for longer than three weeks, um, I don't, I just, it's, it's a whole, it's a whole story, but that's okay. Um, and Katie knew that, and it was something that we kind of joked about, and when we got to the point where it, looked, where it looked like, hey, well, I think we like each other, we might make it past the three-week mark, um, I planned a date, and it was going to be an elaborate date, and, I, and to be honest, I don't remember exactly what it was that I had planned at this point, because now we're talking about ancient history, but I do know that it was going to be exciting, 
But God had other plans. Um, so the, the, the day was going to go, like I was, you know, I was at school because I was a child. Um, then I had baseball practice after school, and I was going to pick Katie up after baseball practice. But midway through that baseball practice, I ended up getting hit with a baseball bat in the mouth. So broken teeth, knocked out teeth, just a, I was just a mess. It was fantastic. Um, and I'm pretty sure I was also concussed um, and so therefore cannot be trusted with a phone. So I believe that it was my mother who then informed Katie that Nick will not be able to go out with you tonight. Um, see, I had a plan. I thought it was a good one but forces completely beyond my control, like a fungo to the face, um, completely upended that plan, as they tend to do. And one of the things that this passage is telling us is that if we ignore the reality of our finitude, if we ignore the reality of our dependence, if we make plans for the future without reference to God, thinking X will happen, it has to without understanding the fact that, that God may have something else entirely in mind. We don't give him the honor that he deserves. We demonstrate, according to verse 16, an arrogant and boastful attitude. And James rightly calls that evil. And to rightly understand that point, we need to step back and recognize some truths about who God is and who we are. See, throughout the Bible, we are presented with a number of tensions, right? truths that seem to interact with each other that are kind of hard to hold together. They exist in tension, and one of those tensions has to do with who we are as human beings. On the one hand, we are fallen creatures. We have sinned, and every aspect of our personhood is affected by sin. We are fundamentally broken, and it's something that we know deeply within which is why we hear cliches like, to err is human, and we don't disagree with that. It's like, yes, yes, I, 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 I err all the time. We know our brokenness. But at the same time, the Bible also tells us that we are made in the image of God. And this means that, that we are created in order to, and are to a point, able to reflect things about God in this world. We're marred images but we're still capable of providing glimpses of the good nature and character of our God. Now, what is it that we are meant to reflect? Well, theologians often uh, break the attributes of God into two overarching categories, using, using the terms communicable and incommunicable attributes. God has communicable attributes and incommunicable attributes. And if you hear those two words, the, typically the thing that, that pops into your head are diseases, Right? There are communicable diseases and incommunicable diseases. Um, and the idea is you can, you can get communicable diseases while incommunicable diseases are not easily transferred. Um, the same holds true with the attributes of God. There are communicable attributes that we share in, and those include things like love and mercy and justice, holiness, goodness. Those are all things that, because of the Spirit of God within us, because we are made in His image, we can reflect to a point. God is the source of all of those things. And as creatures made in His image, again, we can demonstrate those things, though imperfectly, in this world. 
God, however, also has incommunicable attributes, which he does not share with us. And, and those oftentimes are, you can tell when we're talking about an incommunicable attribute because it, it's, uh, it has the preface omni, um, which means all, like omniscience, which means that God is all-knowing, omnipresence, which means that God is present everywhere all at once, omnipotence, that God is all-powerful. Now, unfortunately, when we think about the attributes of God, the ones that we typically want are the ones that we don't get, right? God calls us to be holy, and we're like, how about sovereign, right? How about, how about omnipotent? I would, I would really like to be in control and, and powerful. And friends, when we boldly make and become overly committed to plans without reference to God, we're essentially acting as though we have attributes that we don't. We are acting as though we are God, which is foolish. Because again, we don't know what tomorrow holds. And this passage also reminds us that we are but a mist. Now the word mist that appears in verse 14, it can refer to vapor or steam or smoke but it can also refer to the mist that rolls in from the sea that vanishes by late morning. Right, this would have been a graphic illustration for the sea merchants that James was addressing. We like to think of ourselves and the things that we're engaged in as permanent, but that's just not the case. Let's do just a, a little thought experiment for, for just a minute here. Think, can you name or do you know the full name of all of your great-grandfathers? You've got four of them. My math, yes, my math is right. You have four of them. Can you think of all of their first names? And for me, I can think of one uh, because it's a memorable one, and this is the only great-grandfather that was alive for a significant uh, amount of time after I was born. Uh, his name was Jacinto Dalla Libra. He went by Joe. It was a little easier. Um, as you could probably surmise, he was Italian. Um, and pretty much my only memory of him, the, the thing that sticks out in my mind is that he used to call me Nico because that would have been the closest thing to an Italian version of Nick or Nicholas. Um, and uh, he was always telling me to eat. So within five minutes of, of being in his house, I'd hear, Nico, manja, manja. It's like, okay, Grandpa. But when you think about that fact, the fact that it, it, it is hard for us to recall the names, first names of our great grandfathers. That's, that's kind of crazy, right? These are men who existed not that long ago in the grand scheme of things, whose blood right now is coursing through our veins, and yet they've largely been forgotten by their own great-grandchildren. Now, I bring that up not to be depressing, although it sounds depressing, but to point out the futility of trying to make mist last forever and trying to build our lives on things that aren't eternal. Only God is able to make things last. So planning, building, spinning without reference to Him is futile. All right, so that is the problem with our plans. I would like for us to take some time now to think about how we should approach our plans in God's world. So we have to make plans. It's part of existing but we don't want to make them in an arrogant or boastful way. So what is the way forward? 
Well, James gives us an idea in verse 15. He tells us that we shouldn't just declare what will be or what we will do. He says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Okay, so he acknowledges the existence of plans and the fact that we're going to have to make them. And he gives us this simple phrase, so we can make plans so long as we say, if the Lord wills. It's a nice little preface. It's done. Simple, right? That's the answer. No, that's not the answer. Um, he's not really advocating for like Christianese. Like it's okay to do what you want and say what you want just so long as you, uh, you know, sprinkle in a little bit of Jesus. Um, that's, that's not how that works. Instead, James is addressing a heart attitude. Um, John Calvin writes this. He says, have it as a fixed principle in our minds that we will do nothing without the permission of God. James isn't advocating no planning nor is he advocating baptizing our plans with a simple phrase. Instead, he is telling us that as we approach life in this world, we need to do so with a sincere appreciation for God's control of all things and submit all things to God in our hearts. That means that we need to make plans with open hands. So think for a minute about the things that are on your calendar, the plans that you have actually made. How many of those plans were made with reference to God? And how would you feel if tomorrow they were all completely upended? Would you curl up into a fetal position? I mean, maybe there's a place for that. There's a place for the fetal position every so often. But after that, Would you be able to, or would you even be willing to say with Jesus, yet not what I will, but what you will? See, I think it'd be a good practice to pray these words as you look at your calendar, as you begin to make plans, right? Have in your head and in your heart these words from Jesus, yet not what I will, but what you will. Because friends, we don't know what tomorrow will bring. But there's some good news. God does. God is in control, and that is actually a good and beautiful thing. And to illustrate just how amazing God's control of all things is, I want to talk for a minute about dust. Now, dust is usually something that we try to avoid, and when we see it, we try to get rid of it. But dust is actually pretty amazing. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you why. Uh, I saw a, a Netflix documentary a while back that was produced by a, a science reporter named Latef Nasser. And he did a segment on dust um, in reference to the Sahara Desert. Now, if you didn't know, the Sahara Desert is the second largest desert in the world, uh, behind only to the Antarctic Desert. Fun fact, Antarctica is actually a desert. It's a polar desert, but a desert nonetheless. That's your fun fact for today. All right. But the Sahara is a, a classic desert, and it is a dusty place. Well, there is a specific spot in the Sierra uh, near some mountain ranges where there is a wind tunnel effect. And there is wind that will, that will come down, and it will pick up this incredibly fine dust, like finer than sand. And the wind gets strong enough where it will blow that dust all the way up into the atmosphere. 
And from there, it gets blown all the way over West Africa, and it keeps going over the Atlantic and into this zone that meteorologists call the nursery. Now, most all of the major Atlantic storms begin as little baby storms in this nursery uh, off the coast of West Africa. And what can happen is this dust cloud, and, and this is an observable, an observable phenomena picked up by NASA satellites, this dust cloud can sometimes interact with these little baby storms and actually snuff them out. And meteorologists who have studied this, uh, this occurrence say that there would be far more hurricanes pounding into the Americas without this dust. That's pretty cool, right? But it gets cooler. So this dust can, can, can snuff out hurricanes, but a lot of it continues on. It gets carried farther over the Atlantic, where it then will rain down in the middle of the ocean and feed phytoplankton. You might be thinking, I don't really care about phytoplankton, but you should care about phytoplankton because phytoplankton is responsible for about 80% of the oxygen on Earth. And out in the middle of the ocean, it's kind of hard for this phytoplankton to find nutrients. But then, seemingly out of nowhere, you have this dust cloud that rains down all of these valuable nutrients that keeps them alive. Also very cool, but it gets cooler. Some of that dust continues across the ocean and it makes its way all the way to the Amazon rainforest. The Amazon rainforest, if you didn't know, more fun facts for you. Uh, the Amazon rainforest has over, it's, it's the most biodiverse place on the planet and it has over 3 million species that live in it. A third of the tropical trees that exist on earth live in the Amazon. Now hearing that, you might think, well, the Amazon must have great soil, but you would be wrong. Apparently the Amazon has terrible soil. But this dust, again, this nutrient-rich dust, contains things like phosphorus, which is a fantastic fertilizer. And it sweeps across the Atlantic all the way to the Amazon and rains down on the forest, enabling life to spring forth. Cool, right? Now, I bring all of this up not to talk primarily about dust, although it is fascinating, but to point out that our sovereign God is able to do amazing things even with dust. His intricate attention to detail, his ability to make beautiful things out of dust, including us, is astounding. None of our efforts could come close to what God is able to do with dirt. But not only is our God powerful and creative, he is also loving. And he calls us to do things that he himself is willing to do. Where do we learn to submit our wills and our plans to God? Whose prayer is up on the screen right now? It's Jesus. It's always the right answer in church. We learn what this looks like. We learn what submission looks like. We learn what surrender looks like by looking to Jesus, who out of his great love for us, willingly gave up what was actually his and submitted himself completely to the Father. 
Jesus, in His divine nature, rightly possesses all of the omni-attributes that we pretend that we have. But He decided to take on a human nature, to limit Himself for a time so that He might identify with our weaknesses. All the things, again, that we like to pretend are ours, He willingly set aside. He willingly took on flesh took on weakness, took on limitation so that he could be our representative. But not only that, he was willing to subject himself to the punishment that our arrogant boasting, that our evil deserves by dying on the cross for it. Jesus, who is eternal, was willing to become mist for us. And Paul captures the work of Jesus beautifully when he writes, that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And in doing so, he enables us to have life and have it to the full. Elsewhere, Paul writes, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So consider for a moment, what are you clinging to? Where is your hope? Is it in the plans that, that you don't have the power to ensure? Or is it in our all-powerful and loving God? who is able to work all things together for good and for his glory. Let's pray. Well, Father, we, we pray that your spirit would do a work. Lord, on our own, it is really hard for us to see past our desires. It's hard for us to see past the things that, that we want. And we have a tendency to trust in ourselves, to trust in our ability to make things happen. And when they don't, God, it, it, it can drive us to despair. So God, we confess this morning our, our tendency to, uh, to claim things that, that, that we don't have, to claim power that we don't have, to claim wisdom and insight that we don't have. Father, forgive us for that. And God, we pray that by your Spirit, you would help us to trust in you. Lord, help us to make plans, but to do so with open hands. Help us to say the words of Jesus, yet not what I will, but what you will. And God, help us to mean it. May words like that be more than words. We pray, we pray, God, that we would be deeply impacted, changed, transformed by the Spirit of Jesus. And God, we thank you for the freedom that we have to pray prayers like that, to admit our weakness, to, to admit the ways in which we have gone astray, because we know that we are loved and accepted by you. So Lord, help us to know that in our bones. Help us to trust that. Help us to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.